Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to your week eight edition of the fourth quarter chaos podcast from the fans First sports networks college football feed. My name is Matt Timonini and I am joined by someone who I can now guarantee you is an actual real life person and not just an AI voice that you hear because we met completely coincidentally on the streets of New York City, a town that neither of us lives in. But all of a sudden, I'm just walking the streets, walking away from a, uh, a, a Broadway show and I hear Matt. Matt and I turn around and it is none other than Corey Cohen. Corey, long time no see, uh, especially since we saw each other in person just a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was absolutely wild to to meet. You live in Florida, I live in Pennsylvania, and to meet randomly in uh, like a block away from Times Square, uh, one of the most populous places in the entire nation. Uh, you know, I, I, what are the odds of that? I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, yeah, it was it was pretty wild. Very cool to to meet you in person after doing this podcast for yeah. a little while now. The college football and the musical theater gods were conspiring to uh, <laughs> get us together. Uh, so we did uh, meet in person. Can guarantee you that he is a real life human being and not just an animatronic voice that you hear talking about all things ACC and chaos, as well as the voice of all things uh, Philadelphia, especially soccer. How's the soccer games been going there? Are they wrapping up the regular season now? They are wrapping up the regular season. A lot of conference tournaments are going to be starting in the next couple weeks. And uh, yeah, and then NCAA tournaments for the teams at the the cream of the crop teams. Awesome. Well, we are here to talk about a different type of football, the college football variety. What we do here on the Fourth Quarter Chaos Podcast is we pick 10 games out from each of the college football weekends. And we run you through what happened in them and highlight the things that are crazy, are weird, are unbelievable. And then after we kind of tell you all about them, we assign them what we call a chaos rating. That is a score between 0 and 100 to tell you just how chaotic that game was. Then at the end of the show, we will add up all of those scores and then compare it to everything else that we've done throughout the season. 
Corey, this was not a, a week that on paper going in, you thought that there was a lot of good games. Obviously, the Ohio State-Penn State game was a big one in that noon window. You had a few uh, in the afternoon and in the evening, but it wasn't a marquee weekend. But there was a lot of interesting contests. And unfortunately, we're going to start with a game. I'm sorry to do this to you, but it was about as chaotic of an ending as you could possibly get. Your Pitt Panthers took on the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. And I'm just going to let you go because I, I know how you like to go on rants about Pitt. And this one probably deserves one. Even though, like, I just feel bad. I feel bad for Pitt, Pitt fans, Pitt coaches, Pitt players, Pitt's quarterback. Like, I just feel bad for them. It's it's been a rough year. I promise I'm normally not this negative because Pitt normally isn't this bad. The last few years, last year they had nine wins. The year before they won the ACC championship. Normally I'm a lot more positive and optimistic. This year there's not too much to be positive and optimistic about. So Pitt plays Wake Forest. These are two teams that are on the ropes in terms of even just making a bowl game. Neither team is good this season. They're just looking for something somewhat respectable, some momentum to carry on to next year. But both teams are having bad seasons. So for both squads, for both squads, this is essentially a must-win game if you want to have any hope at making uh, a bowl game. Pitt comes into this game with their new starting quarterback. Uh, his second week, the week before, it's Christian Veyer. Week before, he took down undefeated Louisville. So pretty good first start for him. This is his second game. Wake Forest, on the other hand, has to start their third string quarterback who had entering that game six career snaps all on special teams. So this should not have been much of a contest. However, Pitt is going to pit. So we're going to fast forward all the way toward the end. Pitt gets the ball back. They're down. This new quarterback, Christian Veyer, who looked pretty good, he leads the team down the field. And with 90 seconds left, Pitt marches down the field. They score a touchdown. Just 90 seconds left, and Pitt is up. Wake Forest gets the ball back, and they they start to attempt to drive down the field with their third-string quarterback, who had not played quarterback before in his career. And then Pitt intercepts the ball. MJ Devonshire with a big interception. He's big play MJ. With a minute and eight seconds to play, Pitt has the ball. They are up. The game should be over. That should have iced the game. However, uh, coming up uh, right uh, right after that play, the off or in the middle of that play, uh, the pit defense actually gets called for two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties on the same player. Donovan McMillan was dragging a Wake Forest player away from the play. So like bad. it was so bad. It was so dumb. And I, I do feel bad because afterwards I saw he was in the locker room. He was crying. He felt awful. So I, I don't want to pile on by any means, but on the fields, he would say the coaches would say, anyone would say just, you cannot have that. So now all of a sudden uh field position moves back 20 yards. Pitt has the ball backed up basically up against their own goal line. They run the ball for two plays. Nothing comes of it. Third down, Christian Veyer keeps the ball. He has a first down easily. And instead of running out of bounds, instead of just diving ahead and getting the first down, he sort of starts to slide, but not quite. Like he slows down, he leans back, but then he takes another couple steps and then he slides. The ref, who was about five yards behind him, looked at it and said, 
he started his slide before he got the first down. And so that's where the ball is dead. That's a new rule that it just is based on when you start the slide, the ball is dead right there. Doesn't matter what you do. And they say that he started a slide, didn't get the first down. So because of that, it was fourth and one. Let, let me ask a question here, Corey, because I didn't I didn't watch the game. I've only seen the highlights and I saw the ref immediately like he didn't like there was no question. He immediately went to a yard before the yard marker. Yep. Is that something that they were able to review? Like, did they even talk about whether they could review or is that not something that is reviewable? So I haven't heard any definitive like rule book expert on whether or not they can review it. They definitely did not review it. Everyone that I have heard from is under the impression that they could have reviewed it and should have reviewed it. It was under two minutes. So uh, the coach couldn't challenge it. Pat Narduzzi of Pitt couldn't challenge it, but he was asking for them to review it. By all accounts I've heard, they were able to review it, but they definitely did not. That is, I, I have no idea why, but the refs did not review the spot. Even if they did, it was tough to say because looking at the, I've looked at the yeah. replay a bunch of times and you can make a case either way. You can make a case that when he slows down and starts leaning back, that's when he begins to slide, but then he takes another couple steps and then begins to slide. So it's just one. And ironically, this rule was put in place after Pitt and Wake Forest played each other in the 2021 ACC championship game when Kenny Pickett looked like he was about to slide faked it, kept running, goes into the end zone for a touchdown, the fake slide It's a rule. safety thing. Yeah. I, it makes sense. Like, I totally understand the rule, but you're right. Like, if you, if he would have ruled it the other way, I would have, I would have believed that and understood that doing it this way, like, I can see it from that perspective too. So it's like, it's one of those things where I would have liked to have heard an official rules expert analyst say, this is what it should be because of X, Y, or Z. To not have that at all seems like a, a, a missed opportunity just for clarification, even from the network standpoint, right. let alone from the actual officiating crew standpoint. And the network, this was on the ACC network. The announcers on the broadcast thought it was the right call. The people the, the people in studio immediately after the game were saying that's the worst call I've ever seen. So it was definitely uh, heated. <laughs> there were there were some hot opinions on both sides. When I first saw it, I thought it was the worst call I had ever seen. Looking back, I could understand why they called it the way they did. I understand why the rule is there. It's unfortunate because in that particular case, there was no one near him. It's not like someone was about to tackle right. him, but he started to slide and they backed off. There was nothing. And so because of that, you can then also look at it and say, well, the quarterback could have, should have just run another yard or two, run out of bounds, dived ahead. Like th because he wasn't about to get tackled, his safety was not at risk. He could have just taken it out of the ref's hands, gotten a clear first down. And that was it. So I can see both sides of it at the end of the day. This is not just one thing. If he does do that thing, obviously the game's over. But if not for the two unsportsmanlike penalties right before, the game would be over. If not for the punt, because then it's fourth and one, Pitt punts it away. It was a 32-yard punt. It was awful. If that was a better punt that went 45 yards down the field, maybe Pitt wins that. Maybe it's over then. And then, of course, if the defense stops a third-string quarterback with just 40 seconds on the clock, the game's over there. So it could have been any one thing. But suffice to say, 40 seconds left, uh, the, uh, the Wake Forest, 
third string quarterback who's got a phenomenal name, Santino Marucci. Uh, leads his team down the field, 40 seconds left. They score a touchdown with, I believe, two seconds left, game-winning TD. So it, it does come down to that slide. Was it a slide? Was it not? And then you're looking at it like the Zapruder film. He's starting to lean back. Is that a step? <laughs> is that a slide? Is that really a slide? What constitutes a slide? The whole thing is bizarre. Ultimately, I was heated about it at the beginning. I'm not as much now because the season is a wash. It's terrible. They're 2-5. and five. What are you going to do? But I, I just, it boggled my mind that they called it, that the ref was behind the play, called it immediately, that they did not review it, and that apparently they just go off of that. Again, I can see both sides, but very frustrating way to lose a, a football game. Yeah, I can can certainly understand why that is is frustrating because that was, uh, it was painful. Like I, I, just, I, like I said, I felt bad for everybody involved because that seemed like a, uh, just a heartbreaking way to lose that game. So, Corey, give me a chaos rating for this one. So for most of the game, it was not particularly chaotic. It was stupid, but not very chaotic. Uh, <laughs> I down, down the stretch, there was a lot of chaos. Again, Pitt leading the way down the field. Go-ahead touchdown. An interception that should have iced the game. Then the penalty, the slide. Was it not a slide? So because of the the crazy ending, I'm going to go with like a 65. But yeah, ultimately, a, a, a wild ending. The rest of the game was just dumb. The whole game was dumb, but the, the end was dumb with flair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a, a, a number of games that we talk about today where referees come into play oh, and yeah. add to the dumbness and chaos. Okay, so that was your team that you cover and you root for's chaotic game. I will go to the team that I cover and root for's chaotic game. And that is the contest that happened at Ohio Stadium between the Ohio State Buckeyes and the Penn State Nittany Lions. Was there much of a difference in terms of prestige, you think, between Pitt versus Wake Forest and Ohio <laughs> State Penn State? I mean, I don't know. Both both kind of seem like primetime matchups, no? Yeah, and they uh I don't know what time was what time was Pitt and Wait, because Ohio State and Penn State got the noon. They didn't you even had get the a big prime noon time kickoff. Matchup. No, yeah. yeah, we had a more prime time window. We were in three thirty. Yeah, it's kind of look, I don't I personally don't care about the noon versus three thirty versus prime time, but a lot of people do. Like a lot of people hate the noon games in, in, in Buckeye Nation and I know Penn State too, but it doesn't bother me. Like I don't care. Like I Whatever it means, I don't have to be worried or nervous about it, you know, for That's eight true. extra hours. But it is weird. Like after it's definitely after, weird. After so many years, where like the biggest game of the day was on ABC at eight o'clock or seven yep. o'clock or whatever, to now have like for the Big Ten to have the biggest game of the week on at noon, it's taken some getting used to. That's for sure. But I don't mind. Like you know, I I think I've said on this show before. Like I think all announcers are mostly bad. So like, I don't really care who the announcers are for each game. Um, and it's just, it's fine. Like I, you know, it's fine. I don't watch any of the pregame shows, although yeah. big noon kickoff and game day, were both there. I think they're both horrible television programs, so I don't watch either of them. So it, it's just, you know, it's the game's going to be the same. It's just whether it's dark out or light out. So, yeah, it's just odd. It's like kind of anticlimactic that the marquee yeah. matchup is done at three o'clock, three 30. Yeah. Either way, this was. You know, for me as an Ohio State uh, alum and, and fan, was a pretty exciting game. Even though there was not a ton of scoring that happened throughout the first three quarters, 
Ohio State led the game 10-6 going into halftime. There was nary a point scored in the third quarter, but Ohio State ended up uh, Ohio State ended up putting 10 up in the fourth quarter to win 20 to 12. Penn State got a late touchdown in the last minute or so of the contest, but wasn't able to do anything with it after that. The chaos of this game, and I'll get into some of the stats here in a minute, but the chaos of the game goes back to the referees here. It was 9.30 left in the first half. Ohio State is on the 26 going in on Penn State's 26. It's third and 11. Quarterback Kyle McCord drops back, and he's looking to find who else? Marvin Harrison Jr., because that's who you find in a game like this. But McCord kind of double clutches. And in doing so, he gets the ball knocked out of his hand by Penn State linebacker Curtis Jacob, and the ball literally two bounces. It was a perfect basketball bounce pass, and Jacobs, who knocked the ball out of McCord's hands, picks it up mid-stride, never slows down, and races the other way for a touchdown to put Penn State up 9-3 to with the extra point pending, of course. But because before the strip sack, uh, strip sack scoop and score ever happened, the back judge threw a flag. Uh, Nittany Lion cornerback Kalen King very clearly held Marv, which is why McCord double clutched probably in the first place. So not only did they take the touchdown off the board, but Ohio State got an automatic first down on that play. And then on that drive ended up scoring to be the ones that went up 10-3, even though Penn State thought it would be up 10-3 after the strip sack. This is another one where like, I actually not that I ever feel bad for Penn State fans because I don't never Corey, you're a you're you're a pit person. I can't imagine you ever feel anything like I hate Penn State more than I hate Michigan. And I know that is sacrilegious for a lot of That's Ohio surprising State people like from I, you. I, I love to hear yeah. it because I'm the same way, but that is surprising. I I just I hate all things Penn State. But like I actually felt bad. Like as like it's one of those things where like you look at it and if you watch the replay the flag comes out before the fumble even happens. So like this was an immediate thing. It's obvious as a clear hold, but like if, if the shoe was on the other foot, I would have been going ballistic. So like I felt bad for them uh, in that moment, not bad enough to like actually care, but like I understood why they could be upset by that. Um, it was another game where Marvin Harrison Jr. actually had a couple drops he was targeted 16 times, which is the most in his career. He had 11 receptions, but he probably had another two or three drops. He had three the previous week, which is like not something that we're used to seeing from Marvin Harrison Jr. But he had 11 receptions for 162 yards and a touchdown. Finally kind of getting himself back into the Heisman Trophy conversation where he started this season. And we're going to talk about the Heisman Trophy frontrunner who did not have a good game this week. Kyle McCord, who's the Ohio State quarterback didn't have necessarily a great first half, but in the second half, he was 11 for 14 uh, and really turned it on like he has in most of the, the season and had a great second half. I don't know if that's because Ohio State is stealing signs like Michigan is so that he knows things a little bit better after halftime, but he finished 22 of 35 for 286 yards and a touchdown. That's a 63% completion rating. Not great, but not bad. Uh, 141 uh, quarterback rating, pretty good. Ohio State's offense is still struggling uh, in short yardage and in the running game. But the biggest chaos was that scoop and score called back, which really changed the outcome of the game. 
JT Tui Malo out, the Ohio State defensive, and uh, again, kind of dominated the fourth quarter like he did last year when I think he had the greatest single performance by an Ohio State defensive player in the history of the program. Not necessarily that good this season, but a uh, a, a really strong performance nonetheless. So um, not the most chaotic game, but certainly an entertaining one, one that I was very happy that Ohio State came out on top of. Um, So I'm going to stick with your 65 and just go 65 again there because there were some weird things happening. There were turnovers. There were some some crazy plays mixed in, but um, not the most because there'll be some more chaos here coming up. But I think for a marquee game, that was fairly chaotic. Let me just say I am eternally grateful to your Buckeyes for handing Penn State a loss because, uh, to be fair, every year it's kind of the same thing. They beat up on the weaklings yeah. in the Big Ten. Everyone says they're amazing. They're a you know borderline like like sixth, seventh in the rankings, and then they play either Ohio State, and Michigan, and lose, and then that's kind of the end of that. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for getting the job done because it needed to happen, and uh, I, I was rooting for Ohio State so hard that I was putting the before everything. (laughs) Well, I mean, really, other than a blocked field goal return for a touchdown, James Franklin would not have a win against Ohio State. I believe he's one in seven now. He would be. Sounds right, yeah. However many years he's been, because they play every year, um, the only time they've won is on a fourth quarter blocked field goal return for a touchdown. Uh, to win the game. Otherwise, he will not would not have a win against Ohio State. And look, this is probably the ceiling for Penn State. And in a four-team playoff, that's really frustrating for Nittany Lion fans because they can't get over the hump against... They've beaten Michigan a couple times, but that was before Michigan started stealing signs and started like beating people. But in a 12-team playoff, though, like being, like you said, like six, seven, eight is going to be good enough to probably get them in. So I don't know that it matters, but I'm not sure that they'll ever be able to get to a Big Ten championship game and a national championship level, but they will probably be a fairly consistent playoff team starting next year, even if like they're not actually like real contenders to win it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, James Franklin in the 35 ranked opponents that he's faced at Penn State, 12 and 24. So the man can beat up on the Wisconsin's and the Minnesotas and the Rutgers of the world. And then when they play the big boys, Ohio State, Michigan, we'll see how they fare against teams like USC, Oregon, Washington. They fold. I'm in agreement with you. I think if you're James Franklin, you are set up in the future, number one, because without the divisions starting next year, he's not going to have to play Ohio State and Michigan every year. So he is going to have some years where they just get to beat up on Nebraska and Minnesota and whatever. And then on top of that, as you said, with the 12-team playoff, he probably will go 11-1, and one, maybe 10-2, and two, get into the playoff. And I'm in agreement with you. I don't think they'll win a national championship, but they'll be a very good program right around that top 12 for years to come, especially if they're not having to play Ohio State and Michigan every season. All right, we're going to dive into the rest of the games on our list, but first we're going to take a real quick break. So stick with us here on the Fourth Quarter Chaos Podcast.
All right, welcome back. We are here to dive into the rest of the week eight college football action on the fourth quarter chaos podcast from the fans first sports network. I'm Matt Timonini. I'm joined by Corey Cohen. Corey, you have a lot of ACC games here to talk about. Uh, four of your five games are from the conference that you cover. And it's not just because that's the games that you normally gravitate to. There's a lot of chaos happening in these games uh, over this past weekend. So tell me about a game. This is another one. Like, I, I, I know that this sounds sacrilegious to anybody who bleeds scarlet and gray like I do. But Penn State and Clemson, I probably hate them more than Michigan. Wow. And maybe and and maybe it's just because like until the last two years, Michigan has just been so like and also ran for the past, you know, for the rest of this century. But Clemson, man, Dabo Sweeney, like anything bad about Dabo Sweeney, anything bad that happens to Dabo Sweeney, like I'm here for. In case in point, his asinine comment after the game which just shows what an asshat he is. But anyway, tell me about the game that led to his asinine asshat comment in the post-game press conference. So yeah, this was uh, this was Clemson versus Miami, played down at Hard Rock Stadium, and Clemson sort of fighting for their lives at this point because it has not been uh, a good season for Dabo Sweeney. They, they lost uh, in the first game of the season against Duke, then they lost to Florida State in overtime, and... So they, they were really fighting just to stay alive, perhaps in the race to maybe make an ACC championship game. Uh, they are tied 17 to 17. Clemson gets the ball under two minutes left. Kate Klubnick has a chance to prove he's the guy. He's going to be a, a really solid quarterback for Clemson. And they go three and out. Kate Klubnick throws three straight incomplete passes. They punt the ball away. The Clemson offense is just inept. This is not your Deshaun Watson. This is not your Trevor Lawrence-led offense. This offense looks rough, and it has it did last year, and it does this year. So they give the ball back to Miami. A minute 26 left. Miami actually completes a few plays. They get it down to their own 38. And again, this game is tied, so they only need a field goal. So now you're talking, okay, if you could just string together a couple more passes, you can perhaps win this game in regulation. And yet again, Miami under Mario Cristobal, just baffling late game decisions where they were taking so much time. They were not running a hurry up offense. They were taking their time. They went into a huddle. They they were slow to get up to the ball. Like It was absolutely bizarre. They were not just sprinting ahead with a no huddle offense. And they end up not getting any further and not having any shot at a field goal. They just take it to overtime. But it was absolutely strange that they didn't have seemingly any urgency at the end of regulation to win the game. So they go to overtime. Neither team does much. The offenses in this one did not look particularly good. They both kick a field goal, goes into double overtime, tied 20 to 20. Miami gets it first. The offense actually picks up. They score a touchdown. They go for two because they have to. They don't get it, but a flag on Clemson gives them a second chance. They get it then. So now they're up 28 to 20. Clemson gets the ball. They actually get it to first and goal on the two-yard line, which means they have four chances to get two whole yards, and they cannot do it. Clemson's offense yet again drops the ball. It was ugly. Just I, I could not believe it. First and goal at the two, and uh, they rush it with Will Shipley, a phenomenal running back. He gets nothing. Cade Klubnick, incomplete pass. Will Shipley again, a one-yard gain. And then on fourth and goal, Cade Klubnick gets sacked. 
so Miami defeats Clemson 28 to 20. Uh, Clemson now four and three on the season. Horrible year for Dabo Sweeney. And Miami is now one egregious decision away a couple weeks ago against Georgia Tech from being six and one. So it's kind of wild how the way that we've seen both of those teams has changed just based on one small thing. But yeah, Clemson is having a really rough time and Miami still not a great season. But again, if they just took a knee against Georgia Tech, they would be 6-1 and one right now and competing for a spot in the ACC championship game. What? Like, after what happened with Georgia Tech, like, how can Mario not have somebody in his ear, in his ear telling him what the hell to do in these situations? Like, doesn't he have, like, all these weird, like, uh, 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 assistants and analysts, like, with these crazy nicknames and all that <laughs> stuff, like... The, the 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 dean of uh the dean of righteous thinking or something like weird like that get somebody to tell you how to manage the clock man yeah it's why i mean they were saying that against in the georgia tech game they're like every single football coach in this country has someone on staff with like a sheet of paper that says when to take a knee how much time how many timeouts like this is a formula this should not be that difficult and yet again late in regulation he just seems to have no idea what he's doing i don't know i mean overall again they're five and two. It's a pretty good season. The man can recruit, but late in games, I you just cannot trust that man. And honestly, it's shocking that this went to overtime, double overtime, and they somehow managed to win as opposed to choking it away. But good for them. Yeah. All right. What's your chaos rating for this one, Corey? I will go with a 47. I'd say just below average. Okay. Double double overtime, 47. That I'm a little surprised uh, that, that even with the overtimes, we didn't get higher than you know that. What? that I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll bump it up to like a 52. Let's go 52. Okay. Seems fair. All right. I'm going to go out to the West Coast and do a, a Pac-12 game because you never know how many of these there will be. This one was a ranked-on-ranked matchup between number 14 Utah and number 18 USC who was looking to avoid losing two games in a row after it's beat down at the hands of Notre Dame. Um, the game was really, for most of the game, just a pretty entertaining back-and-forth contest. Both teams hit big play after big play, as you would expect from USC. But Utah is a team that, as it was announced uh, over the weekend, is going to be without their starting quarterback for the entire season. Cam Rising, who tore his ACL in the bowl game last year, uh, is not going to return this season. So instead, they have been led, as they have been all season, by junior quarterback Bryson Barnes. And they haven't necessarily been an offense that put up a ton of points, uh, but did pretty well on on Saturday. While Barnes was only 14 of 23 for 235 yards, he did have three touchdown passes and a, uh, a did throw one interception, but he rushed the ball 10 times for 57 total yards. And this was a pretty enter entertaining game. But like I said, they went back and forth. But it starts to get really chaotic because USC got a pick six in the fourth quarter and Caleb Williams fumbled, but then recovered his own fumble with just over three minutes left in regula regulation. And here's where it starts to get really chaotic for me, Corey. With 3.08 remaining, Utah is leading 31 to 23. That's an eight point game. It's a one score game but because of that fumble that Williams had that he then recovered it's fourth and 15 but from the 19 yard line like it's fourth and 15 from the 19 so this is certainly within uh, a touchdown distance especially for the reigning Heisman Trophy winner but 
with three minutes and eight seconds left, instead of going to try to score or at least get a first down, Lincoln Riley opts to kick a field goal. Even though one score game, they kick the field goal and the score is now 31 to 26. USC had two timeouts left, not all three, but had two timeouts. And with Alex Grinch running your defense, that's certainly no guarantee that you are ever going to get the ball back. But in this situation, they do. And with two minutes left, true freshman Zachariah Branch returned a punt to the 11-yard line. And Caleb Williams, on the very next play, on first down, runs it in to go up 32-31. to They tried a two-point conversion, but it was no good. So it's just a one-score game. So that's the score. Utah gets the ball. They move it down a little bit. But with 16 seconds left, they're on USC's 45. They are running out of opportunities. They still have timeouts. But at 16 seconds, they cannot... Uh, they, they, you know, they really can't bl- waste many opportunities here. It's second and 15 and Barnes actually was looking to throw, but nothing is open. He scrambles and he gets all the way down to the 17 yard line with five seconds left. They call a timeout. They do the whole thing where they run to the middle of the field, take the knee, call a timeout. So as time is running out, Cole Becker hits a 38 yard field goal to win 34 to 32. Just some, you know, I don't, Obviously, it's hard to criticize Lincoln Riley for kicking the field goal because it worked out. And I understand it's fourth and 15, but like with three minutes left, that's just another one of those decisions, Corey, where like, why do you not have somebody telling you that's a bad decision? Like, it doesn't make any sense because you still needed a touchdown to win. Now, granted, they needed a touchdown and then a two point conversion just to tie previously. So I guess that that adds to the calculus there. But uh, really kind of crazy way to end this game. Um, Again, it's just kind of fun to see USC be this offense and be this team that much like Penn State, everyone always wants to be back and wants to say that they're better than they actually are. And then when they play teams that are halfway competent, they end up losing. So USC probably uh, almost certainly out of the the Pac-12 running here. Caleb Williams was 24 of 34 for 256 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. He ran the ball 10 times for 27 yards, probably has played himself out of the Heisman Trophy competition over the last two weeks. So I don't know, man, like that's just kind of a weird, crazy game to me. So chaos wise, I'll probably go just because it was it was was an entertaining back and forth game the whole way. So I'll probably go with a 62 um, again, solid, nothing great, but um, I just, it's just fun. Like seeing USC lose again, like it's all my favorite teams are losing or, or my, my favorite teams to see lose are losing. Yeah, right. So, so I love that. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was definitely fun. I mean, the late game uh, heroics from Utah and definitely fun that a week after, or I guess a few days after the story leaks, the Caleb Williams once ownership in whichever NFL team drafts him or he's not going to go there. And like the, the, the hype and doing? just the ego is just building up that he loses to a former pig farmer from Utah. Absolutely incredible. No notes. Uh, I just love to see it. Yeah. All right. You're going to hit us with a game that is not in the ACC. You're one non ACC game. Tell me about Alabama and Tennessee, because I was watching that in the first half. I got up to do some things and I came back after halftime and holy crap, did that game turn around? 
Absolutely, yeah. This game, Tennessee versus Alabama, it was a chance for Tennessee to get things back on track. They have had one loss, but this could have been a big win, could have put them in the driver's seat in the SEC East to make the championship game. They were still firmly in contention to make a playoff. If you've got one loss, you go to the SEC championship game, uh, you know, you've, you've got a real shot. But uh, yeah, Tennessee, uh, they were up 20-7 to at halftime, uh, and then they didn't score another point. For the entirety of the game, Alabama in the second half went on a 27 to nothing run in that second half. One of those was a strip sack uh, for Alabama. It was just an epic play for them. They were at the time they were up uh, by seven. They were up by one touchdown and then they get to Joe Milton. Uh, they they strip sack him. He fumbles the ball. They run it back for a touchdown. That puts him up by 14. And, uh, yeah, that was all she wrote. Tennessee in the second half just could not get anything done. Joe Milton overall still played well. He's still having a good season. Uh, but the, the run game just wasn't really there for Tennessee. The Alabama defense stepped up in that second half. They're starting to look like a patented Nick Saban defense. Uh, McClellan had 115 yards rushing for the tie. Jane Milrow had 220 yards passing. And again, that defense it stepped up in the second half. In the first half, I really thought that could be an upset because Alabama at points this season has not looked impressive. But I think they are starting to come together, and they, they beat a good Tennessee team. And so now Alabama has a big game coming up uh, first weekend of November against LSU. That uh, will be very interesting to see which one of those two likely goes to the SEC championship game to play almost certainly Georgia at this point. Yeah. Give me a chaos rating for this one, Corey. Uh, I wouldn't say terribly chaotic. Um, it was kind of low because – the second half was just a bludgeoning. I'm going to go of a high of like 36. Yeah, I'd say like a 36. Okay, that will work. I'm going to go with the game from the Big 12. And it is a it is one that features a team from the town that I live in, UCF, still looking for their first Big 12 win. They took on the Oklahoma Sooners. It was really nice, um, especially after, game, after the game. Oklahoma quarterback Dylan Gabriel is a former UCF player and had, as many people remember, just a, a really nasty injury um, that thought that it might end his career. But after multiple years of rehab, he ends up transfer transferring to Oklahoma and is now a Heisman Trophy candidate. But here's where it gets chaotic. One, one of these is fun, and then we'll talk about the chaos. But with a minute and a half left in the first half, UCF quarterback John Rice Plumley executes a really, really impressive RPO where he rides the running back into the line and then pulls the ball. This brings the corner who was covering wide receiver Javon Baker crashing into the line, and it leaves Baker completely wide open. So Plumlee just throws a really nice, simple throw to Baker, who takes it for an 86-yard score to put the Knights up 17-14. to 14. But at the 30, as he's running, he looks over to the OU sideline and blows them a kiss, which... I'm honestly shocked it didn't draw a flag and negate the, the touchdown right away. But I'm happy it didn't because that's hilarious. Um, Brett Venables, the head coach for Oklahoma, argued and argued and argued. And Baker and fellow wide receiver Kobe Hudson were actually both flagged for unsportsmanlike penalties. But after the play, I did not see a replay of what they did after the play. So I don't know if it was a taunting thing. But clearly to me, Corey, running down the sideline, actively blowing a kiss to the opposing players that feels like the definition of taunting to me 
Yeah, I, I I can't believe that they didn't call it for that. I'm with you. I'm happy they don't. I, I think as long as taunting isn't malicious, I'm good with it. I love seeing it. It's a blast. But I am absolutely shocked with some of the stuff that we've seen called taunting this year that they did not call that one taunting. I understand the reason for um, the taunting rule. I I want to see more taunting. Like baseball, I want to see more bat flips. Yep. Um, and and football, I want to see more flexing. Like, give me give me more of that. But anyway, here's where it gets super chaotic. With 3:23 left in regulation, Oklahoma's up 24 to 23, and sooner running back Gavin Sawchuck takes one 30 yards, and for a moment, Corey, he kind of runs parallel with the goal line. I wasn't sure if he was like looking just to waste time, or he was contemplating going down and not scoring at all like we've talked about multiple times in the past year, but he does actually go in to put Oklahoma up 31 to 23. UCF gets the ball. Uh, like I said, just about three minutes left. They move the ball down the field and on fourth and 10 from the 12 minute and 24 seconds left. Baker catches another touchdown pass. UCF is down 31 to 29. They have to go for two to tie the game. But what do they do? They decide to try to pull a double pass. They throw a backwards pass to Xavier Townsend, who was going to look for a wide receiver in the end zone. But OU was not fooled whatsoever. They had everybody covered. In fact, they had like everybody was pretty much double covered at that point. It ends up being a tackle for a loss. They never get the pass off. That ends UCF's hopes of getting its first Big 12 win. Score uh, ends up 31-29 Oklahoma. So it just... I think I saw, I don't remember who it was, and maybe you saw this, Corey. There was some team that tried to pull a double pass twice in a game, and it failed both times. And I can't remember who it was. It wasn't this one, I don't think. But it was like multiple times teams, a team tried to pull a double pass in the same game, and it ended up failing. Like, I understand that these occasionally work, but like using that as a two-point conversion seems really, really risky to me. Yeah, it's uh, what's the acronym? Kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Sometimes you just mm-hmm. want. Again, we're going back to these coaching staffs. Why isn't there someone on there to just like, hey, uh, maybe just don't do something like that. Don't try to pass it twice. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of wild. I think everyone wants sort of their own version of like the Philly special, and they they want to be heroes and they want to go in in the highlight reels. But yeah, sometimes the simplest answer is the easy one, or the easiest answer is the right one. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go because of the kiss. Like, I feel like this deserves some extra points here. So I'm going to go and I'm going to give this one a um, I'll stick with the 65 we had earlier. Like the ending wasn't super chaotic. It was a little chaotic. We had the kiss. So I think I'll, I'll stick with a solid 65 there. All right. I like it. All right. Back to the ACC. We go, Corey, Florida State and Duke, a game that looked to be neck and neck for most of the game. And then all of a sudden it was not. Yeah. This game, I think a lot of people were hoping outside of, I guess maybe the, the ACC uh, bosses because they want their, they want a team to get into the playoff and Duke was not going to be that team. Uh, But I, I think outside of that, pretty much everyone was hoping that Duke would somehow manage to pull it off against Florida state. And for a while they look good. Uh, Duke's defense is is pretty darn legit. They actually had a pick six on Jordan Travis that put the Blue Devils up 17 to seven. That was early in the second quarter. 
But then the first play after that, Duke kicks it off, and we see a kick return touchdown. It was either 98 or 99 yards for Florida State. And so then it's immediately just a one-possession game yet again. At the half, Duke was up 20-17. to 17. In the third quarter, nobody scored. Both defenses looked good. Now, for Florida State, that's not too high praise because Duke's offense has not been particularly good this year. This is definitely the, the best-on-best matchup was Florida State's offense against Duke's defense, uh, without a doubt. And there was a stalemate for, for a good chunk of that. But come the fourth quarter, Duke could only do so much. Uh, Florida State scored three touchdowns. Um, you compare the two quarterbacks in this one, and you look at it, and you know, as great as Duke's defense is and can be, there was just not much of a way for Duke to win this game when you look at the two quarterbacks. Riley Leonard had 69 yards passing, which nice, but not nice. ideal. Yeah. Um, Jordan Travis for Florida State had 330 yards between passing and on the ground. So there's only so much you can do when that is the case, when that's the delta between Jordan Travis and Riley Leonard. Uh, Riley Leonard, who was uh, injured earlier this season. So, yeah, it's it was tough. A lot of us were hoping that Duke could pull it off, but ultimately Florida State just ran away with the game in the fourth quarter. It was not particularly close by the end. Florida State beats Duke 38-20. to All right, so what are you thinking in terms of a chaos rating for this one? Yeah, this one, not particularly chaotic. Um, I'll go a little bit under the Tennessee-Bama one. I'll say 33 for this game. All right, um, I'm going to head back to my neck of the woods, the Big Ten Conference, and talk about the Minnesota and Iowa game. Because normally when I talk about Iowa games, it's basically to make fun of how inept they are on offense. And while that is still absolutely the case, the true chaos in this one, Corey, comes with the score 12 to 10 in favor of Minnesota, who is punting from their own 17 with just 140 left in regulation. Great opportunity for Iowa if they can figure out how to move the ball to get some pretty decent field position and potentially win this game with a field goal, which is something that they are actually competent at as special teams. Iowa punt returner and all around uh, offensive specialist Cooper DeGene Let's the ball bounce at first. Uh, it wasn't a great punt. He let it bounce, but he had some room, so he decided to pick it up at the 46-yard line. He breaks a handful of tackles and ends up returning it 54 yards for a touchdown to put Iowa up 16-12 to with the extra point still to come. However, upon further review, it was determined that DeGene had actually made an invalid fair catch signal, which means that the ball was dead as soon as it was recovered. Apparently, all of the rules experts that chimed in on this afterwards, Corey, which we didn't get that in your game with Pitt, uh, but they said it's the right call. They said it should have been called on the field, but it was the right call. But to me, like I understand the rule. Like If someone's moving their arm, it can be confusing for people. It's kind of like the fake slide you mentioned with Kenny Pickett. But when you watch it, it's pretty clear that with his right hand, he's pointing at the ball and doing the thing when it's like you're telling your teammates, ball, 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 don't touch the ball, get away from the ball. And with his left arm, he's waving it. It's not above his, his head. It's not even above his shoulder, really. He's waving him off, waving him off, telling him to stay away from the ball. And then like nobody goes and touches it down for Minnesota. So he decides to pick it up and he runs with it. It, we actually saw in the Ohio State game, this didn't happen for them. A ball bounced up and hit Lorenzo Styles Jr., and it ended up being a turnover. So apparently that was enough to be considered close enough to a fair catch signal that it should have been marked dead. The score comes off the board. <laughs> Iowa has no offense. So on first and second down, they lose a total of seven yards. On third and 17, 
they throw an interception that ends the game. Just an absolutely perfect Iowa way to end this game. The score, 12 to 10. A total of 22 points scored in that game. Brian Ferris is done. Like there, He is not getting to 25 points this season. There is no chance. Uh, I, I, uh, over on the Land Grant Podcast Network, I spoke with Scott Docterman last week, who is the beat writer for Iowa at The Athletic. And he just said, yeah, I mean, there's really no chance. Even playing the Big Ten West the rest of the way, there's really no chance that they're going to be able to get to 25 points per game. So um, a crazy play, a, a crazy ending. Iowa still sucks at offense. So I'm going to go with a chaos rating of... Normally, I just go with 25 because I think it's funny, but that, I think that was a legitimately chaotic ending. So, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a 60 on this one because any game where you have the game winning touchdown pulled off the board because of a random rule that is not even called on the field but is eventually called upon review, like that's fairly chaotic. So I'll hit hit him with a 60 on this one. Yeah, right now, by the way, they're averaging 19.5 points per game. They've got to get that up to 25. And by the way, that was anchored by 41 points against Western Michigan. If you take that outlier out of there, it's there. It's absolutely horrid. Um, Yeah, ultimately, I'm kind of happy that Iowa lost only because there was a very real chance that just based on how the schedule worked out, that they were going to be an 11 and one team. And we could not have that. That team was not remotely worthy of 11 and one. Absolutely. So I I am happy that they lost, even though obviously that was a chaotic again, similar to the pit game. What's a slide? What's a, what's a fair catch? Is his arm moving? Is he starting to lean? The whole thing's bizarre. All right. So one more trip into ACC country for you, Corey. This one was a shocker. Like this was we didn't get a ton of upsets this week, but this was certainly an upset. UVA versus UNC. Absolutely. And and I promise uh, that, again, it's not just because I cover the ACC on this network action packed podcast. You can hear us later this week. Uh, but there was just a lot of chaos in the ACC this weekend. And yeah, Virginia versus North Carolina, Virginia, one of the worst teams in the FBS so far this season. I mean, the who's were up until this game atrocious they were uh one in five their only win was against william and mary they lost to boston college they lost to james madison like virginia was having an awful year and understandably so uh coming off the tragedy that ended their season prematurely last year meanwhile they're facing a unc team that's undefeated real chance to get to the acc championship game perhaps win it maybe even make the playoff and and this is in chapel hill well, uh, UNC had the lead 24 to 14 late in the third quarter. Uh, Virginia ties it right just about at the end of the third quarter. Uh, then uh, the UVA defense just stepped up in a major, major way, which was shocking because we knew that UNC's defense wasn't anything sensational. So it wasn't shocking to see that they were going to give up some points to Virginia. But what is absolutely shocking is that Drake May, one of the better quarterbacks in the country, managed to score 27 points against Virginia. And after the 9-minute and 35-second mark in the third quarter, UNC did not score a touchdown for the rest of the game. So even with their backs up against the wall, they just could not do much of anything led by Drake May. It it was wild. So UVA scored the go-ahead touchdown with under 9 minutes left. And... North Carolina just could not respond. They could not score a touchdown. They actually had a chance very late in the game still to win. They're down 31 to 27. Drake may gets the ball yet again. 
And with 31 seconds left, they're at the 48-yard line. There's a decent chance they can go get a go-ahead touchdown, game-winning touchdown. And he throws an interception. UVA picks it off, and that ends the game. I mean, it was absolutely wild to see this UNC offense not able to do much of anything. After that touchdown on their first drive in the uh, in the third quarter, their following drives were punt, field goal, punt, turnover on downs, and then that interception to end the game. So UVA's defense stepped up in a big-time way. North Carolina's offense, I have no idea what happened, but they went from an actual <laughs> contender to make the playoff and win the ACC to now, like, I have no idea what, I mean, the ACC looks like Florida state and nobody else because it doesn't seem like anyone can challenge them. North Carolina seems to be overrated. And I I will say one really cool thing in this game, Mike Hollins, who was a victim in that shooting last year, he actually got shot, uh, fortunately survived on like a couple of his teammates, but he managed to survive. Not only is he back on the team and playing, He had three touchdowns running in this game. So uh, just an incredibly cool moment for Mike Hollins for this Virginia program that needed something uplifting. It's a shame this wasn't in Charlottesville, but still a really cool victory for Virginia. And uh, they took out North Carolina. And and now the second spot in the ACC is just wide open. So who what what is going to happen here? Like, so give me the breakdown. We know Florida State is in the driver's seat. To get yep. one of the spots, what does the race for the other ACC championship game berth look like? And how do things break down? And if there's any tiebreakers at stake at this point, obviously, there's still a month plus to go. But still, still, let me give me give me the, the idea about what the landscape looks like. Yeah, so this is going to be the first season the ACC is doing this without divisions since they since the last round of expansion. Right. So normally in the past it would be Florida State or Clemson versus whoever comes out in the coastal, and it would rotate between Pitt or North Carolina or Duke or Miami or something. Uh, this year it's just going to be the top two teams. So Florida State certainly looks like they'll be number one. After that, it could be anyone. There are five teams. Excuse me. There are four teams that just have one loss at the moment. Louisville is 3-1. and one, Their only loss coming to Pitt. They could respond if the Pitt game was just an anomaly and they're pretty good. They can respond. They've got a big game with Duke coming up this week. So one of those two teams will be back in the driver's seat because Louisville and Duke are two of the four teams with just one loss. So whoever wins that game this weekend, in a pretty good spot. North Carolina coming up, uh, they will have a game against Duke. But besides that, they play Georgia Tech, they play Clemson, who knows about Clemson, and they play NC State. So they are still very much in it, but still they're going to have competition with whoever wins the Louisville-Duke game coming up. And then a teeny tiny chance Virginia Tech right now only does have one conference loss to Florida State, and they don't have a difficult schedule. They play Syracuse, Louisville, Boston College, NC State, and Virginia. If they can run the table... They've got a real shot. I don't think that'll happen. Uh, I think it'll likely come down to either North Carolina and then the winner of uh, Louisville versus Duke coming up. But we will certainly see. And the North Carolina and Duke play each other, so that could that could take care of itself as well. But this is going to be uh, pretty interesting. So definitely, folks, if you're interested, listen to Action Packed right here on this network. All right, we didn't get a chaos rating for UVA-UNC. What do you have on that one? 
just it, the game itself wasn't the most chaotic, but the fact that one of the worst teams in the mm-hmm. FBS beat an undefeated, I think UNC was ranked 12th maybe last week, something around there. I'm going to go with a 67. I think that's just an upset that absolutely no one saw coming. I think it was like a 28 point line UNC was favored by. Absolutely bonkers. All right. My last game is going to head back out to the West Coast with a Pac-12 game between the Washington Huskies and the Arizona State Sun Devils. Arizona State is not a good team. They came in to the contest 1-5. Washington, of course, was 6-0, the number five team in the country. However, it was a barn burner of a game. In fact, at halftime, Arizona State was up 7-3 over Washington. No points were scored in the third quarter, and it took Washington putting up 12 points in the fourth quarter to end up winning 15-7. to This was a game where this should have been one where the Heisman Trophy frontrunner, Michael Penix Jr., was out by mid-third quarter. He put up so many yards, put up so many points. His day was done. He ended up throwing 27 for 42 for 275 yards, no touchdowns, but he did have two interceptions. He also turned it over on the ground once. He fumbled a ball on a really ugly, uh, I don't know if it was supposed to be an option or if he was trying to pull away, but it was a bad uh, a bad handoff. Uh, Washington ended up actually having four turners over in the game. They fumbled another one. All, th- all of them were pretty ugly. And so how we get to this score, the score was seven to six with 826 remaining. It was Arizona State was still up, but on fourth and three in the red zone on the 12, Arizona State quarterback Trenton Borgay tries to force a pass. Again, it's fourth down, probably could have uh, kicked a field goal to make them uh, to make it not something that. Washington could win on just a field goal, but they decided to go for it on fourth and three in the red zone, throw an interception. Uh, UW cornerback Michelle Powell then returns it 89 yards. It gives Washington their game-winning score. They actually did go on. They missed their the two-point conversion, went on to kick a field goal, but 12 to seven was all they needed. Um, really kind of crazy. Like it, It's funny, Corey, because no one has really dinged Michael Penix Jr. He is still the de facto front runner for the Heisman Trophy. Um, I honestly think it helps that it was too late and people weren't watching. Yeah, it's a Pac-12 after dark game. I, if they would have lost, like I feel like this would have had a bigger impact on them, but he did not play particularly well. As an Ohio State person, Like I'm looking for all of the quarterback. I'm looking for him, for, um, for Dylan Gabriel, for Bo Nix to just suck it up so Marvin Harrison Jr. can keep putting up yards. And, uh, and have a shot to break the quarterback uh, hold on that total or on that trophy. So um, this one was chaotic, not necessarily in like what happened on the field, although the game winning pick six, 89 yards is pretty chaotic, but it's pretty damn chaotic when you tell me a really bad Sun Devil team, which is not only bad, but they have nothing to play for because they are on a self-imposed bowl ban this year almost beats and probably could have and should have beaten the number five team in the country. That's pretty chaotic to me. So I'm going to go with um, a a nice round 70 on this one to give us the highest score of the, uh, of the week. And that means that this week's score is 575. It is not the highest. Our highest still remains week six, which had 608 total chaos rating. 
but it is our number two. It beats our week one action of 555. I feel like we might have been a little generous with some of these. I think so, yeah. <laughs> but look, we're in the moment. We're going with, with what our gut tells us. Yep. The gut is usually right. Um, but it is still number two behind week six, so I think that is very fair. Yeah, certainly not the most chaotic week. Not entirely sure if it was the second, but ultimately I, I don't have qualms. I think this was a pretty consistent week. There weren't, there wasn't a phenomenal game at the top, but overall some solid games. I think that's what it was. There was nothing where you're just like, oh my God, did you see that? But there was a lot of like games you're like, huh, did you see that? Yeah. So it was like there was more of those and, and not any of the big high ones. So, all right. So Corey, give me a game that you think is going to be incredibly chaotic in week nine. Okay, so uh, looking at week nine, I'm looking to see if there there could be some sort of crazy upset. I, I, I'm interested in Oregon versus Utah. I have no idea if that could be like 60 to 7 uh, because Oregon scores in bunches and Utah not so much. But I, I think that one could be chaotic. Honestly, I, I know I'm sticking with the conference that I cover, but I think Duke versus Louisville can be pretty darn chaotic i'm gonna go that because both teams have so much on the line again the winner of this is pretty much in control of their own destiny in terms of making an acc championship game i also think that both programs are coached very well so i think that is going to make it interesting uh but both programs are pretty inexperienced not exactly expecting to be here and so i think there can be some absolutely bizarre plays that come out of this a player making a mistake here or there uh so I i'm gonna go duke versus louisville in a midday game, I think that one could could be a, a sneaky chaos game. I'm going to go with two kind of off the radar, highly ranked teams versus unranked teams. I'm going to go Oklahoma versus Kansas at noon on Fox. Keep an eye like for that, that one. And then 3.30 on CBS, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, the number one Georgia Bulldogs, taking on the fairly woeful Florida Gators. But this is just one of those things where... Florida, not a great team. They've got two losses. They lost to, to Utah in the opening week. They've lost to Kentucky. But they did beat Tennessee. They did beat South Carolina, although that was a, a really close game uh, in their last game before Georgia. Georgia has not looked great. So like this is one of those games where the Gators could step up and kind of bite Georgia when they maybe weren't expecting it. Georgia, again, their schedule is so bad, but... This could be one. This could be one of the few guy, games that they could potentially lose. We've talked a lot about how bad Georgia's schedule is, but for the rest of the season, other than Georgia Tech in their regular season finale, they've got Florida, but then they've got teams that are, at this point at least, currently ranked. They go from Florida to number 16, Mizzou, to number 12, Ole Miss, to number 21, Tennessee. Do I think that they're going to overlook Florida for Mizzou? Probably not, but... Could be a little trappy here, especially if Georgia wants to or if uh, Florida wants to prove something, having already lost two games. So I, I like it. Yeah. Georgia coming up to a to a difficult part of their schedule. And, and you know, Florida's tricky. I don't know. I what, What's the spread on this one? I mean, what what's the Florida Georgia line? Oh, I good night, folks. Tip your server. <laughs> Try the veal. Uh, all right. That is all that we have. If this game does end up 
being chaotic. We will talk about it on next week's episode. If you want to follow along with everything that we do at the Fans First Sports Network, follow us on social media at Fans First SN. If you are not already subscribed to the College Football Feed, please make sure that you do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your daily dose of audio goodness. If you want to follow me on social media, you can do that at Matt. Corey is on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, at Corey E. Cohen, and pretty much Corey Cohen everywhere else, right? Yeah, Corey Cohen, Corey E. Cohen, you can find me. Um, and uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, hit me up. Let me know. All right, everybody, have a wonderful week, and don't forget to embrace the chaos.